VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call and get in the queue. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And I know you heard Brian Medor mention this in the newscast. You'll hear lots of people talking about it around the water cooler, possibly in your office or social circles today. A Newfoundlander headed to the Stanley Cup Finals. Wouldn't it be something that the Stanley Cup was part of come home year? Incredible. So Alex Lohook and his avalanche sweep the Edmonton Oilers. They're off to the finals. I can only recall that Michael Ryder played in a final, of course, in one. Danny Cleary in a final in one. Has anybody else from this province competed in the Stanley Cup Finals? I'm not sure. I'll throw it out there as a question. You can fill me in. If I've missed a name, they could potentially have a long wait. If the Tampa Bay-New York series goes full seven games, the avalanche will be waiting 11 days before they get to lace them up in the finals. Okay, good one. I've been hooked on the tennis, as you know. Today in history, 2009, Roger Federer, the great Roger Federer, became the sixth man in history to win a tennis grand slam and tied Pete Sampras's record of 14 majors at the time when he won the French Open, beat a fellow named Robin Soderling. Now, there's now eight men who have won the grand slam, and that includes now Djokovic, of course, and Nadal, who've done it since Federer became the sixth man in 2009. And on the women's side, here's something that's never been accomplished by anyone on the men's side and probably never will. Steffi Graf, the great Steffi Graf. She was number one for a record 377 weeks. And the summer of 1988, she won all four majors in the same calendar year and completed the Golden Slam by winning the Olympic gold medal in women's singles as well. So the great Steffi Graf, boy, she was something else. 22 majors on her record. Okay. You know, it's a real shame, but what a mess of Canada soccer. You know, the, se- the season started off with an Olympic gold medal for the women. Ex- ex- Exciting to say the very least. The men qualify for the World Cup. Then the shenanigans with Iran and Panama. And now the women can't sign a contract with uh, Soccer Canada. And there's a standoff happening there. Now, of course, they're looking for uh, equity in pay compared to the men. And some of the problem is not just a Canada soccer. It's that women pro club level pay so little compared to men's, of course. And then at the FIFA pot of money, even just qualifying for the, uh, the World Cup, Canada men's team makes about $10 million. The entire prize pool for the Women's World Cup is like $30 million. So Canada soccer in just absolute turmoil. Unfortunately so. Anyway, you want to talk about it. Let's go. And boy, oh boy, don't look now. The price of gas. You know, I'm almost tired of talking about it, but of course it's, it's impacting everything we do. The price of gas up overnight, nine cents. Again. So the break we got when the government cut half of the provincial gas tax until the 1st of January, and the move on diesel as well. All of those bits of relief, gone. They're in the rearview mirror. So the PUB, I mean, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to this. They'll refer to the benchmark price for the distillates in question, but... Where does this stop? And even when the PUB becomes more transparent and has to give us an idea of their cocktail napkin work to uh, come up with the price of gas, it's not going to change the price of gas or diesel. And diesel is up 10.6 cents across the province today. You know, at some point, this is backbreaking stuff. 
I know a lot of people have already changed their driving habits and their plans for the summer. And, you know, I'm not too worried about the tourists. If they come across on Marine Atlantic, they're going to pay the price of the pumps, say la vie. But for people here, like even when we were encouraged to have the old staycation, right? You know, when some of the travel restrictions just made it unmanageable to travel. And now some of the costs associated with flying off the island, for instance, is out of control as well. But you've got to ask the question of where does this stop and how does this actually work? The regulated price of fuel? Man, oh man. It's regulated to the price where, to the place where I'm not so sure what people are going to do. And I get it. You know, people will ask for the province to do more beyond the five-point plan and some of the adjustments made on the provincial gas tax and diesel tax and talking about minimum wage. None of this is really... Look, I get the government doesn't have the money to be just giving us a summer-long relief of any taxes on the prices of fuels. Stove oil up, again. I mean, and I just don't know where it stops, but I'm like you. I'm extremely frustrated with what's going on there. And, you know, I yes, it would be nice to know, via legislation, exactly how the PUB comes up with the price. But as Boyd uh, points out on Twitter, just knowing the recipe doesn't make the end product any more tasty. Right? Anyway, if you want to talk about it, we can do it. But And then, you know, every time we bring up electric vehicles, I get a lot of really crooked, nasty emails. I'm not so sure why. You know, it's a transition that's happening. The St. John's City Council last night passed an approval for uh, installing some 26 Level 2 charging stations, four of which will be at the newly constructed Muse Center. Where the others are going to be and when they're going to be installed, I don't know. But I'm always a little bit, I guess, roll my eyes sometimes when... People get cross when we talk about electric vehicles and or the hybrids, and they're coming, and they look like a pretty attractive option these days. Yes, there's going to be concerns with some of the advancements still required and price point to get into an EV, but, you know, I wish I had one today all of a sudden. Anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. So there are just so many fires to put out for government and individuals. And today, we're anticipating an announcement by the provincial government to deal with recruiting and retaining doctors. New additional measures. What they're going to be, I don't know. But when the numbers are starting to jump off the page, like 24% of the people in the province with no family doctor, that equals about 125,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So today, the announcement is going to be made by Premier Fury, the Dean of Medicine at Memorial University, that's Dr. Margaret Steele, and one of the med school students. You know, they can talk about the foreign qualification recognition, opportunities for improvement, and of course, it's not just about money to recruit a doctor, the most highly mobile, in-demand professional probably in the country at this moment in time, if not the world. So what they're going to do, I don't know, but it's interesting that they've included the Dean of the School of Medicine. There's long been the thought, and I've been told I'm dead wrong on this one, but I'll throw it out there again. So if we expanded seats at Memorial University School of Medicine versus creating a law school and the ability for more Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to get into their very own med school and the possibility that they'd be much more likely to stay and to practice in the province versus some others who come from elsewhere across the country or around the world and they want to, you know, it's a fairly inexpensive med school tuition, which we subsidize heavily. I know Mons Med School operates on a separate budget from the university at large, but the fact that Dr. Steele is included in this announcement means there's got to be something to do directly with the operations at the med school. Maybe it's about seats. Maybe it's like what people refer to as a service agreement. I'm subsidizing your education. I wouldn't mind if you stayed for a while. As opposed to you get your degree, you cross the stage at the Arts and Cultural Center and walk right off the stage out to St. John's International Airport and off you go. So anyway, I know this is a big one. Also in the world of healthcare, Dr. Parfrey, uh, Dr. Pat Parfrey, of course, who's a member of the Health Accord, 
And he and Sister Elizabeth Davis, they've done a monumental amount of work on this front for nothing, for free, worth pointing out. And he's now been named the Deputy Minister of Health Transformation. We're still awaiting the blueprint for the 57 recommendations in the first report from Health Accord. The way the province deals with health and plans for the future, whether it be the recognition of what the population average age will look like and accommodations for and plans for the frail elderly and what long-term care looks like and what aging in place looks like because we can't wait to deal with something that we know is coming. We know all, we have all the information required to make the plans. And then I'll throw this out there. How many of you have used virtual care? Medicuro or from the health authorities themselves. It's going to become more and more of a normal offering in years to come. So have you utilized virtual care? Would you consider virtual care? Because, you know, it would save you travel and some potential visits to your family doctor if you're lucky enough to have one or to your collaborative care clinic if you're lucky enough to be on the patient roster. If it can save you the travel and the time sitting in waiting rooms and to be in the comfort of your own home, maybe just with simply follow-up appointments or ailments that can be evaluated via the computer screen. I think it's going to be a bigger part of what we see in the future. And for instance, at the uh, Rufus Ginchard Health Center in Port Saunders today, they're going to be relying in full on virtual ER services because of a temporary physician shortage. So those types of headlines and stories are going to be a bigger part of the healthcare conversation. But if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. All right. This is, a, this is a curious one. So the RNC, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, they're warning uh, residents in particular in Labrador West that illegal social media lotteries are now being monitored and they are in contravention of the criminal code. Well, now. So we know full well that if you go through ServiceNL and you get a license for if you're a not-for-profit uh, or a charity, you can get a license to conduct your lottery. Whatever it is, you know, for a cash prize or a car or a dream home or anything else under the sun. There's a lot of importance associated with the lottery because you have to report the numbers so that there's a quasi-audit to keep things on the up and up to ensure that people who purchase a ticket in one lottery or another or a 50-50 actually get what was coming to them. And there's no shenanigans on the other end by the, uh, the operators of the license or, pardon me, of the lottery. I get it. But, you know, there was one person in particular quoted in this story saying they're not going to stop because if something pops up where a resident of Lab West needs some help, for instance, to get out of Labrador, to get down to the island for a medical appointment or otherwise, then they try to raise some money and they do it very quickly and have great successes when they turn to social media. I understand why the RNC is doing this, but how much latitude are we going to offer here? Because some quick fix fundraisers are really enabled and advanced when people use social media. There's a lot of people on social media, and if they didn't know about it, then they wouldn't buy a ticket. If they didn't know about it, then they wouldn't try to support the cause. But anyway, if this is going to be the case, then it, the story should also include how ServiceNL evaluates applications and the ease with which uh, applicants can get approval and the time frame associated with it. So it can't just be a one-side, you know, potential violation of the Criminal Code of Canada and an offense and a charge, it's got to be, if we need to do something quick like this lady's doing, I'll leave her name out of it, and she wants to sell tickets to help send someone down to the island for a medical cause or medical reasons, then that application should be 
you know, greenlit to its suite. She says she's not going to even pay attention to this particular piece of monitoring by the RNC because she says, what's the quote? If I get pulled into court and questioned and God forbid find or whatever happens, I'm going to stand up and proudly say, hey, I helped Bobby Joe down the road get to St. John's for his appointment and I'm not going to, it's not going to hold me back. Definitely not, says this one particular lady. I get where she's coming from, but let's hope that there's no issue coming her way you want to talk about that i think that's a really curious one to be honest with you and i just saw an email out of the corner of my eye before we went live here this morning a lady asked an important question as i'm sure many parishioners that are involved in one of the 34 parishes in the archdiocese of saint john's and all the bids that went in five days ago for the potential purchase and who knows what transformation of their church or their parish hall or any of the properties associated with it we know there's been some protections given and some compromises met you know whether it be with cemeteries aren't up for sale and that only makes sense and you know what kind of person would want to develop over a cemetery and then the big one regarding St. Bonaventure's College and the Basilica and St. Kevin's is protected and some of the $5.5 million they raised in that crazy Chase the Ace contest there a few years ago. But the lady's asking the question is when can the parishioners anticipate some information regarding what's going to become of their parish? I have no idea. It's certainly going to take longer than five days to evaluate the bids. I don't even know how many bids would have been submitted for all 34 parishes, if any. You know, there's going to be a bill of about $50 million that the Archdiocese is going to have to pay, and rightfully so, to the victims at Mount Cashel. But it'd be nice to have some base understanding of how long people may have to wait till they find out what's going to happen with their parish. And of course, it all boils back to, I think, the summary point made by many is, how can it possibly be that a small parish is going to have to potentially shutter its doors and all the while, the Vatican sits on billions upon billions of billions of dollars. And they get to just watch their congregants worry and the anxious moments as they find out what's going to become of where, they're, where they go to their place of worship. It might not be a big concern of many uh, listening, but I'm sure it is of some. And if you want to tackle it, we can do exactly that. How are we doing on the telephone this morning, Dave? Let's get it going. I was up late watching the game. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Uh, you can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Let's get a tune on the go before we come back and discuss whatever you want to talk about. Today, uh, at the top of the pop charts in 1975, John Denver. Thank God I'm a country boy. Don't go away. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me came hack. It's early to rise. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Homes have, have property and, you know, around them that we're mowing. So, you know, we're twice as large as the average European home in Canada. Twice as large. And any home that we build now... We, have to, we need to aggressively, and this is where the, the municipalities have to get involved in the province, the feds have to get involved. They need to be 50 to 80% less energy consuming. Any home that's built now, like, and I know that's not what's happening. The new developments around this province right now will be a little bit more energy efficient. I was talking to a guy who built, who was building ICF homes a little while ago, and a few years ago, and he actually, people didn't want to pay any more for an ICF home than for a typical wooden frame home, ICF being uh, ice block or styrofoam foundation, styrofoam walls that the concrete pours into the middle. 
and people just didn't value them. And you know, and anybody who's, who's buying or building a house or who's constructing a house, and it, you, you see them around. If you drive around, you will see some ICF homes, generally the bigger homes. Um, but, you know, the thing is, we just need to look forward. We don't need to look forward very far. The price of energy is going to go up. Electricity is going to go up, too, as we know. When, when hopefully when Moscow Falls comes online, the price of energy is going to go up 15%, and then it's going to go up 2.5% every year. That's going to accumulate quickly, and, and we all need to adapt as quick as we possibly can. Yeah, I would suggest that's probably true. The pushback sometimes includes this. Well, what happens to all the taxes the government collects on gas tax? Well, stands to reason, when we reach a critical mass of people who have a hybrid, which I think is going to rule the roost versus a full electric, then when that becomes the majority of vehicles, they'll quickly adapt to some sort of tax. And, of course, the big profit that comes in to the province or revenue that comes into the province regarding the sale of electricity versus what is very little revenue beyond taxes for the province in the sale of uh, petroleum products, then it just kind of changes the revenue stream, and they will adopt. They're not going to just all of a sudden throw their hands in the air and say, well, that's okay, no more gas tax. And it's going to be, I mean, that concern is so far down the road that I'm, I don't even think that's one of the key concerns that even the consumer would have at this point because, yeah, money for bridges and road work and culverts and the like, they'll get the money. And it might be through consumption of electricity to fuel your EV or your hybrid. But anyway, and on the tiny home bit, the first community that gets into the tiny home that embraces the concept of a tiny home is going to see people move to their community. Like, I don't need a big house. I have just a regular middle-class bungalow. Big enough for me. I mean, I live in the same 10 or 12 square feet that I do every day. So, but those tiny homes, man, 23 square feet, a three-piece bathroom, uh, a bed and some storage up in the loft or what have you. I mean, it's not too, it's not big enough for me and my uh, two big Amagon boys and my wife, but for many people, that might be absolutely ideal. So it's not just about affordable housing. It's about what people actually need. And I guarantee it. Like, remember there was, uh, I think it's even Jess Potister, when, uh, now that I think about it, trying to get approval, I think it was like maybe in Flat Rock, and had no luck with it. And communities are getting pushed back from the residents saying, you're going to decrease the value of my property if you allow people to bring the tiny home into our middle-class bungalow subdivision. When I get it, but the more things change, the more those real estate value adjustments will be negligible. They're not going to all of a sudden, if my home is worth $100,000 and all of a sudden there's a tiny home, you know, 500 feet away, I didn't lose 10% of the value of my home. I mean, that tiny home might have the best kind of citizen uh, living in it and have a beautiful property, and off we go. I I just don't really understand the hesitation to adopt the tiny home. But the first community in and around town, for sure, that does it, you're going to see an influx of people move to your community, no doubt. Uh, Appreciate the time, Tom. I'm off to the break. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, like the tiny home's not good enough for me, but I have buddies who are single, that maybe, just maybe, as opposed to trying to get into, you know, a $325,000 home and then everything that goes with it. And home ownership is great until you got to take care of your home and pay for your home and to pay to heat it and to pay to furnish it and to pay to for the upkeep, which is a never-ending task. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Catherine's in the queue about uh, the uh, Women's Center, pardon me, and then we can talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line 
on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Catherine. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Good. Perfect. Um, so, Patty, I want to make a, a call out for the Women's Center that needs a couple things. And also, if I could, I just want to, after that, throw a bouquet out to somebody. Um, so, the Women's Center really is in dire need of um, small and large Ziploc style bags and brown paper lunch style bags and that's for their swap program this uh, harm reduction um, program so um, they put a call out a couple weeks ago on social media but I checked with them yesterday and they haven't really they haven't gotten any donations so I just want to encourage people if you're able to pick up a few extra Ziploc bags or you know a package of uh, paper lunch bags they, I know that uh it would mean a lot to them and their clients. So uh, I wanted to throw that out there for your listeners. Just out of curiosity, the bags are used for what in particular? It's used for the harm reduction. Too. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, they need to put them in there to, uh, to hand things out. Well, the Women's Center, of course, houses a variety of different uh, organizations and efforts between Safe Harbor Outreach, Marguerite's Place, the Status of Women Council. So it's there's a lot of work going on in that particular center here in the city. So if you're able to make a donation, whether it be of the products themselves and or some cash to help them purchase it, then easy enough to get in touch with them. Um, you can call them quite easily, of course, 7530220. And the email is an easy one, too. It's just reception at sjwomencenter.ca. That's correct. And if you want to drop it off during business hours, it's 170, so 170, Cash and Avenue Extension. Yep. Um, so, yeah, they would appreciate some help. I want to throw a bouquet out. I know this has been a conversation on your program in recent weeks about um, eyeglasses and eye tests and being able to afford that. Um, Dominion on Black Marsh Road. The optical that's inside of that store, Patty, I have been dealing with them now for several months, and uh, I've spoke to a lot of people as well, and their customer service is second to none. And whether you have insurance, um, whether, so whether you, you, know, you, have to, you can afford them, or whether you're low income or on a fixed income, they work with everyone to make sure that you get what you need. Excellent. Good to hear. Customer yeah. service goes a long way. It does. And the fact that they're willing to work with you financially as well, um, because it is a financial strain for some people who can't afford to get their eyes done or get uh, glasses. And they work with everybody, um, work with your budget, and they will go above and beyond to make sure that you have the eyeglasses with the prescription and everything that you need. Excellent news. And once again, if you have the capacity to donate uh, the items and or some money to the Women's Center, the information has been passed out. I have it at my fingertips if you didn't get the chance to jot it down. Uh, thanks for this, Catherine. Thank you, Patty, and you have a great day. The same to you. 
All the best. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Jerry, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I hope you don't mind me having a tell a little story. It's a bit personal, right, but uh, I think it'll be interesting. Okay, go for it. Okay, it's all about uh, the young guy now from Gulf Avenue, and uh, he grew up in town, and uh, it's a story about his journey from Gulf Avenue to Arlington Cemetery. So his name is Jerry Cavanaugh, and uh, he was born here in the city in 1933, and at a young age of 20 years old, he joined the U.S. Air Force. So he signed up at Fort Pepperell. Uh, my Aunt Catherine at the time was 18 years old, and her and her girlfriend decided to go to a popular dance hall in Kilbride. And I guess just a place for young men and women to hang out and hook up. That's the word today. So, mm-hmm. 1953, at this dance, they met two soldiers in uniform. And Catherine told me that uh, she knew right away which guy she wanted. And at the end of the dance, the guys apparently had a car and offered them a run home. And she was in the front with Jerry and just casually asked him where he was from, you know, wearing a U.S. Uh, soldier uniform. When he said he was from Gulf Avenue, well, she was surprised. So they dated for about a year and a half, 1955. They got married, and I think his first posting was in Wyoming. So he was, I believe, 22 years old. She was 20. So he had a long haul from St. John's to Wyoming at the time. While he was in the military, he became interested in communications and uh, became, I guess, what you would call a lineman for the county. So in 67 or 68, he was sent to Vietnam, Uh, served two years, came back home, settled in Pennsylvania, and ended up working for a pen telephone for 20 years. He retired, and after a while, I think he did a bit of consultation work. But while he was working with uh, Pentel, he was uh, instrumental in developing fiber optics. And every time he'd come home, they used to spend their time up in Pippi Park. Every now and then, I'd have a chat with him, and I'd ask him about the war. Uh, like most soldiers, he would brush it off. and So I know he didn't want to talk about it, and I just trapped the subject. So yesterday... Catherine was telling me that uh, she was going through some of these things and found medals from the war, one being the Bronze Star, and I think it had four or five more medals besides for different deployments in different countries during war. Okay. And uh, so anyway, uh, he passed away yesterday morning, and they're all brokenhearted, of course, you know, 89 years old. He was an American citizen but he always called himself a Jolly Newfoundlander. And when he'd come home up to Pippi Park and in the evening, sip another drink of vodka, he'd break into song, singing Newfoundlander, Jolly Newfoundlander. And he would not stop. And finally, someone would say, Jerry, give it a rest. We had enough. You know. And then he'd take a sip of vodka and start laughing and go right back into the song again. Uh, he was a great guy. I Fascinating. So uh, help me understand how he ended up joining the American Air Force, the U.S. Air Force. So is yes. he a Newfoundlander, a Canadian, lived no. on Gulf Avenue, or he just spent some time here? Born in town, lived on Gulf Avenue, grew up on Gulf Avenue. Okay. So this is very unusual for a guy from town 
to join the U.S. Air Force. Absolutely. Now, I'm not sure at the time if he just signed off for the military and then after probably six months or a year, I think he had a choice then he can go Army, Air Force, or whatever. So he went with the Air Force. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. But, uh, you know, he, he was a great guy, great husband, father, grandfather, soldier, and a jolly Newfoundlander. And now to be buried at Arlington. And to be buried in Arlington, which is going to take place in the next few days. So he's going to be uh, transferred, I guess, now from Pennsylvania to Washington. And buried in Arlington, which is, you know, for for Catherine now, uh, his wife is, you know, it's a great honor. Oh, 100%. And so uh, I don't know how much you know about it, but does anybody... Is anybody able to tell the story of how he won the Bronze Star, which is a really high recognition for for heroism? Well, apparently there are two different Bronze Stars. So one is for uh, uh, being uh, at the front during combat. And the other one is for being in a combat zone and uh, displaying uh, heroism or valor on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Right. So which one he did now, we're not sure. But either one, you end up in uh, an area of combat that's considered uh, brave for yourself. And that's why you're awarded the Bronze Star. So it's a good story. It is a great, it's a great story. Yeah. So uh, I try to listen and uh, try to remember things as we talk. So you said that the man's name is Jerry Cavanaugh. Jerry Cavanaugh, 89 years old. And uh, I mean, we're going to miss him. That's life, I guess, right? They had a great life. They were married six. As a matter of fact, when they get married in 55, mm-hmm. my mother said to well, her younger sister, Catherine, she said, you'll be back home in a year. That was 67 years ago. And that's right. That's their life. They made their life in the U.S. And what else, what else can I say? I think it's remarkable. I'm really glad you called and told us about it this yeah. morning. You know, and who knows what he or anybody else saw doing two tours in Vietnam, you know, what battles he may be involved with, case on yeah. or otherwise. But that's well, just, it's remarkable. It is. And, yeah. and so Jerry Cavanaugh from Gulf Avenue to be laid to rest in Arlington Cemetery in the next few days. I really yes. appreciate this this morning, Jerry. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, you know, I was talking to Catherine yesterday. And I didn't tell her I was going to do this. I didn't even know I was going to do it. But last night I made the decision to uh, give you a call. And Because what I was thinking, oh, Betty, there may be some people around that age, 89, 90 years old, that might have grew up with them. And, you know, they didn't probably like to hear this. Now, I'm sure. I, I'm I sure there are. Not too many 90-year-olds still around, but... Well, I bet you some people who knew Jerry Cavanaugh on Golf Avenue as a child, they're yeah. probably smiling ear to ear hearing this story this morning, albeit, you know, the sadness of his passing and our condolences sure. to his family and his friends. Yeah. And if anyone else would like to add to this particular, not only love story, but of right. course his time as a young fella on Golf Avenue or anything else about the man's life, right. I'm happy to take it on because sometimes it's a really welcome reprieve to have these types of conversations versus yeah. some of the other right. things that we think about and talk about here on the show. So... I'm sorry for your loss, Jerry, but yeah, yeah. I really appreciate your time. Well, you know, like I said to Catherine yesterday, they had a great life together, and you got great memories. I'm sure they did. Okay, buddy. Thanks, Jerry. Okay. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. 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 There you go. That was terrific.
Uh, my Aunt Audrey married an American serviceman as well and made her life uh, from her young 20s in the United States of America as well in different places. I remember the first time we visited them in the States, I was only a child, and we drove to Brunswick, Maine is where they were living. And they lived at eventually, I believe, in Savannah, Georgia. And last going off, they were in uh, Southern Hills, I think is the name of the community, in North Carolina, right outside of Pinehurst. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number four. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad, Gary. How about you? Not too bad. I came in over the highway there about an hour ago. I, I called it in the VOCM anyway. Um, I was coming in over the highway, and it had to be a garbage truck or something ahead of me, from Witness Bay for about two kilometers, right smack in the center of the road for about two kilometers, there's a backload of garbage. It's going to cause some accident on the highway. And I don't know if they got it cleaned up yet or not, but drivers should be aware of it. And so just big load of, like, of garbage bags that would have come out of a truck or just loose garbage? Garbage. Just loose, all kinds of loose garbage. It was bags. And the goals are there, and they got it all tore up, and it's all over the highway. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how and why this happens as frequently as it does. I know that they tried to uh, give out some tickets on Robin Hood Bay for unsecured loads uh, one day a couple of weeks ago. But this stuff just happens all the time. Like, what kind of garbage truck can't secure the load of garbage before they take to the road? So, anyway, if you're traveling in and around the Witless Bay line today, beware that you might come around the corner and there might be a vehicle dodging a bag of garbage ending up in front of you. So, proceed with caution. Well, I almost uh, went up the uh, rear end of somebody that had locked up their brakes that uh, I guess they didn't see it at first. And uh, it just about put me off the road. Well, it could happen to anyone. And so, you know, you don't know what's going on behind you necessarily, but if you come around the corner and you encounter whatever, uh, some debris, some garbage, an animal, you may indeed have to apply the brakes pretty quickly. So it's always just that helpful reminder that, you know, tailgating is as dangerous as a variety of our bad behaviors behind the wheel. So uh, from on the Witless Bay line, there might indeed be some obstructions out there that causes you some tense moments. So just beware. And hopefully whoever can be responsible for having all that garbage on the road can do something about getting it off of the road. Now, that requires a really cautious approach, too, for the individuals and for the motoring public because someone trying to do the right thing, they can't up, end up under your vehicle. So watch out. And that's a fact because it's right on the turn coming underneath the bridge there in uh, Witness Bay, and uh, it's it looks pretty dangerous there, boy. Well, so maybe the province and the department can put out some uh, cones and some warning signs while they get that garbage off the road before we have a headline that includes uh, a collision on that stretch of highway. I appreciate you telling us about it, Gary. Thanks a lot. Okay, and have a good day. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. It happens all the time, right? You know, the unsecured loads, as much as we do see that people will be willing to drive down the highway or whatever road, and when they're done with their burger or whatever, down goes the window, out goes the package, which is just mind-bending how people are willing to do that. But a lot of the big stuff that we'll see, and I think the Outer Ring Road is a good example because it is the road to the dump. And so they gave out some 30 infractions, uh, some tickets there, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, because when you see 
the mattress. It wasn't someone driving down the road that flicked the mattress out on purpose. It was someone who had a mattress in the back of the rig and wasn't secured and the wind blew it out. So we have all sorts of examples of these big items that end up cluttering the ditch. And just imagine, and I've, I've told, this, uh, told this story many, many times. This was a f- number of years ago, I can't remember. Picked up some friends of mine at the airport and heading towards their hotel. And lo and behold, we're only about three or four minutes from the airport. And the first comment was, man, look at the mess. <laughs> thinking, oh, God. And they're absolutely right. Because at that point, it was prior to the annual shutdown and tens of thousands of dollars worth of cost to clean up that stretch of the Outering Road, which is generally pretty bad. And then they did it again. Uh, they had to. I mean, I, I don't blame the province or the city for doing what they have to do to clean the place up. But they had to shut down pits last week to do the same thing. So do yourself a favor. And also, I think it was Walter who chimed in via email and said, as opposed to choosing the stick versus the carrot, you incentivize the secure load with whatever it might be. I don't know what the incentive might be when you show up to the dump with an actual responsible secured load, but, you know, keep the tickets coming too. So when people hear that their buddy got one, they'll be wise on, wise to it, and they'll maybe do more to ensure whatever they got in the back of the rig doesn't end up in the bloody ditch. How would you run the phone there, Dave? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're talking about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Gus, you're on the air. Good morning, Billy. Morning to you. I think I might have something that we can agree on. There's no rhyme or reason to the the rising gas prices these days. I mean, I get there's contributing factors, but is it really? Did it change since last Thursday enough to hike the price of gas nine cents overnight on a Monday night? Like, I just don't know what's going on here. No, and uh, the price of a barrel of crude is still only $120, so. Yeah. But anyway, it's to entice and steer people towards the electric car. But there's a lot of things that the, the public don't know. For instance... Uh, w- when they built the gas I- gas car, the gas engine, they uh, they put a charging system in it. There's o- there's more options to do it in an electric car. You you can <laughs> you can have a solar panel on top of them, and uh, you know the, you wind you're creating on the highway. So there's all kinds of ways that they can put a, a, a charging system there, even the alternator. I don't know why they couldn't put an alternator on it to put charge back into the batteries, same as they're doing now. Well, I don't know. There's, I guess the manufacturers would have you know, dealt with or given due diligence to all the different ideas, but cars can recharge their battery as they operate. Like, I know not every vehicle is like a race car, but race cars, they regenerate battery, battery energy through a variety of applications, like braking. So yeah. there's things that can be done. And I don't know, you know, sometimes you say, well, this is just uh, Trudeau trying to put us, push us all into an electric vehicle. When around the world, and all the major manufacturers, they're working towards providing price point sensitive uh, advancements in EVs and hybrids because that's the way the, the industry thinks it's going. It's not because of Justin Trudeau or Macron or anybody else. I don't know where that argument comes from because the automobile industry itself, they are leading the charge. They're building these vehicles. Well, the public is being led like the blind and and whatever so? the world says today, then they go along with it with no questions asked. But I, I guarantee you, they better not cut out the gas altogether because 
what happens in a storm, well, especially in Newfoundland, what happens in a big storm and, and, uh, and uh, uh, the, the road gets blocked and there's people still, you know, trapped on the highway and uh, they're going to kill their battery by trying to keep warm but with the heater going and, uh, and uh, how, do, uh, how, uh, how do they get out of there, like, you know? And, uh, well, a couple of things. How often does that happen, number one? And well, secondly, I can see the headlines now. 20 uh, people perished last night with the uh, with, uh, storm that uh, caused the highway to, to be closed down and people trapped on the highway. Uh, it would be a disaster. you got to have so much gas for, for emergencies like that. I don't think they can go right to the, to the electric, all electric. Well, I don't know. I really do think that uh, the hybrid will be the most popular option if people move away from the fully uh, internal combustion engine. But here, here you go. Uh, most electric vehicles sold now have a battery capacity between 50 and 80 kilowatt hours. A 50 kilowatt uh, battery would run heat at one kilo- kilowatt for nearly 50 hours, assuming the car is using a bit of power for other things like the infotainment screen. So you'd have to be stuff- stuck an awful long time to not be able to keep yourself warm. Well, that's what you're being told, anyway. Well, I mean, <laughs> where does that come from? Like, you say that we're being led around like the blind or whatever. Based on what? And give us an example of what that means. Well, because battery technology says, is what it is. If, if the government says, or the, the engineers, or the, the scientists says that this is best for the, the economy and, and for the environment right now, the people like sheep are going to be led to that. And, and this oil prices is a, is a good example of that. Like I said, there's no rhyme or reason for it going up except to steer people to electric cars. Uh, people are waiting in line to get those electric cars, but they, they don't have all the facts. Like and they're being being fed like you just read out there that uh, you know there's uh, there's no no reason why you could should get stuck on the highway but you know that people will get stuck on the highway. Okay, so are we being led around the same fashion when it comes to the regular vehicles that we drive today, with the internal combustion engine? Well, yes. Well, for instance, the gas prices. The 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 first they were blaming it on uh, on. Uh, the war in the Ukraine and now, like, uh, and Russian oil, uh, th- th- like the oil prices, the crude has not gone up enough for, them to, for the, the gas prices to be where it is today. So we're, we're just being scared into uh, following what the government is telling us. But, but it's not just happening so, here. That, you know, we're pretending that this is just a phenomenon happening in this province yeah, or this yeah. country, but that's not accurate. That's yeah, not true but, at all. Well, in in uh, other places, I know I lived in Toronto for many years, and uh, every day rush hour, you're 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 slowed right down uh, to stop some days, and uh, with the air conditioning they're going like that, that here in Canada haven't been proven yet to be uh, reliable enough to get you out of that situation. So if it's all electric, I'm telling you, there's going to be problems. You can mark my word for that, and. No matter what they're saying, outline the battery is going to last and everything. You know, there's no reason anyway why they wouldn't put a charging system on it. None whatsoever, because they know or they want the the price that they're going to get in electricity to, to recharge it. It can be recharged for free, but they don't want it. Nobody makes any money that way. So, you know, and I just thought that the public should 
consider those things before they jump in line and 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 uh, grab that first uh, car that comes off the off the market comes off the similar line well i mean i think there are those electric vehicles and hybrids improve all the time buddy mine just bought a rav4 it's got a 10-year warranty on the battery yeah uh, i was being told in the past so well the battery's going to calf in four years well toyota doesn't think so because they're giving me a 10-year warranty on the battery well can you think of any reason why they wouldn't have a charging system on them well, I mean, I just don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about the technology, to be honest with you. Exactly, to even say. and the world don't know enough about it either. But you're telling me that people, through their own due diligence, we'll call it, to research what they're getting themselves into, to understand the upside, the downside of an EV or a hybrid or continuing on with their internal combustion engine, the cost throughout, the, say, the course of five years, ten years, what it costs to operate one vehicle versus another. You're telling me people can't figure that stuff out? And I agree with you on that, but not everybody is going to do it. Like for me, if 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 I was younger, I, I bought my last car, last new car, and last new truck. But if I was younger, I would stick with the uh, with the gas slash electric. I I I would want to back up there. I wouldn't depend solely on electric. Well, I'm pretty sure my next vehicle is going to be hybrid. I'm pretty sure it is because even if I just go to fill up my rig today and my buddy with the electric vehicle and he tells us quite clearly what it costs to operate, he's not out selling us on electric vehicles all the time. You know, if I ask him a question, what did it cost you last year to operate your electric vehicle? And then I do a cost comparison to what it costs to operate mine. But I'm pretty much convinced the hybrid yeah. sounds good to me. You better take into consideration what ifs, you know? Cause, uh, what if uh, what? Getting stuck uh, in the highway? For a scientist, Patty. A scientist will come up with, a, say, a formula, and as the next scientist behind him, is his job to prove that formula wrong. And if two or three other scientists comes behind and they can't prove it wrong, then it's good science. But what are we even talking about now? So the science of electric vehicles? No, but I mean, the, the, the <laughs> you're just believing everything you're told. That's what I'm saying. That, that's, like, that's complete nonsense, Gus. I've, I'm pretty damn sure that I have a pretty careful look at a variety of things before I talk about them. It hasn't been, electric cars hasn't been proven here in Canada uh, yet. And, and everybody, because of those oil prices, is going to run out and, and grab an electric one as as it becomes available. But why, why do you and, care what and, someone does with their own money? Why? Why do you care what someone does with their own money and what kind of vehicle Oh, I don't want? have a problem with it. <laughs> I'm just putting out this as a bit of information, you know. Well, you're not really giving us any information. You're just giggling at me like I'm some sort of bloody idiot uh, who hasn't done enough reading to ensure that when I spend my money on a hybrid, I know what I'm getting myself yeah. into. Yeah, well, the, listen, if, you only, if you're only looking for the good things about it, then you're not going to see no, no negative things about it. You've got you to gotta get the full story. Why wouldn't I? It's well, my money. Because you, you, uh, you're, you're all for it and you're promoting it. I'm promoting electric vehicles by talking about them? Uh, yeah, you're, you're okay, not. Okay, so uh, I'm talking about Dr. Shortage, you, so I'm promoting Dr. Shortage? You're not it might be possible, what I'm saying. If the pitfall I have to look out for is being stuck on the highway in a snowstorm, I can consider that. Okay. Fair enough. Thanks for the call. You have a good day. You too, Gus. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Let's get an update uh, about the pop tabs on line number two. Good morning, Miss Miller. You're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you. How are you? Doing great. How about you? Not too bad. We just finished counting our pop tabs this morning. We finished our last couple bags that we've uh, received since we last talked to you. Yeah. 
and we're around the 800,000 mark. <laughs> wow, because last time that we communicated, it was around 650,000, I think you had. So you've yeah, had a big had, influx. We've had a big influx in the last two weeks since I talked to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Where are they coming from? Anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> wow. Um, we've had them from, um, oh my gosh, I've had them, some come in the mail. Some relatives of our kids sent them from PEI. We've had them come from Bonavista, Clarenville, Grand Falls, Windsor, Carboneer. They've come from all over. I think it's awesome because, you know, this just let's go back to the beginning as to why you were on this quest for a million uh, pop tabs. We uh, started the pop tab thing back in September. Uh, the curriculum had come for our grade five, supposed to go from um, zero. Well, they had to to be aware of numbers up to a million and identify them and things like that. So the kids, when we after we read a book one day, um, they wanted to know what a million of something looked like. And that's sort of how the project got started. <laughs> yeah, so we uh, we chose Pop Tabs because we could take them to the Ronald McDonald House and trade them in. So after getting to a million, or that was the plan, there was actually a purpose for the thing that we were going to collect. And how much space does 800,000 Pop Tabs occupy? Well, we were looking at it this morning there, and it's going to be a full regular size pickup truck boat. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite. It's about, I'd say it's about 500 pounds. 550 pounds, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrific. Okay, so you still need a couple of hundred thousand pop tabs to yeah. satisfy the road to one million, which I think is great. <laughs> so where do you want people to collect and to eventually send well, their uh, pop tabs? Uh, they can certainly still contact us here at Bishop White School in Port Rexton. Just Google us and you can find the number. Um, we're actually taking the 800,000 pop tabs. We're bringing them into St. John's on Thursday. Um, and we're making, I'm making sort of a year-end trip out of it for my grade fives. And we're going to um, stop at Ronald McDonald House. And our school has been hatching salmon eggs this year. So we're going to take the salmon eggs and put them in the river at the Flavarium. And we're also hoping to take in the Geo Center. So it's going to be a, a bit of a, a fun trip and a bit of an educational trip, too. Taking the Pop Tabs on tour. We are. Right around the McDonald's house. <laughs> I love it. So, folks, if you need the information, didn't have a chance, you're driving or you didn't have a chance to jot it down, I have it uh, right here on my screen. So you can contact me. I can put you in touch with Miss Miller and her crew out in Port Rex, and then we can make it all the way to $1 million. I appreciate the update. <laughs> No problem. Thank you so much for all your help. Happy to do it. Take care. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. Here you go. Just how much is a million? They're finding out via the pop tab. All right. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Line number four, Andrew, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad, sir. I just wanted to touch on uh, what you had going there in your last conversation before the, the lady about the electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of share sentiment with him in the sense that I don't know if the technology is proven on this yet, and we're almost forcing a square peg down a round hole. Nobody's forcing for, you to do anything. Well, like he says, when the price of oil is at, you know, comparable rates of two years ago, where now 
Our fuel is up around 217 a litre. And we, as a country, have removed making oil and gas a priority. When the Liberals joined power in 2015, they put a 10-year environmental impact assessment, which crushed our industry, both here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and as well in Alberta. How did it so crush now, the industry here? Well, we have the uh, we have this environmental impact assessment that cannot be overlapped through any other any other studies throughout you know similar ecosystems or things like this, and that's just the beginning of it. So he says they're trying to force into you know electric vehicles. I guess my only question would be, what is the uh, the carbon impact and the you know of getting these batteries the 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 very fine resources that they are you know mined and refined from to create these batteries and then again where are they doing it so what is the moral complications and the ethical business standpoints of these countries that create this like china and other other industries well and in labrador so uh what are the moral and ethical implications of the fossil fuel industry well i guess if we give all our uh, our uh, our power to, you know, Saudi Arabia oil and as well Russian oil, we have to deal with what they do for business practices. I know, are they using slave labor? Are they using, you know, uh, uh, the same practices that we would use here in Canada? I'm not too sure. And I'm wondering, you know, why it is that we take their oil and we wouldn't want our own when we have a, an abundance of it. Is it an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing? Well, who's we? Uh, the country doesn't import any Russian oil, uh, hasn't for a long time. The, the Russian petroleum product they import added up to about $250 million, so kind of dropping the bucket fossil fuel stuff, and that's been banned too, so none of that comes here. And who's we importing oil? We as Canadians importing oil. And why, are, why isn't it we as Canadians here in Canada refining this oil and sending it over to the markets where Russia is getting their money like Europe? We, we are right on the, the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. And why better? Why not us? But again, who's we? Like in the refining business, who's stopping anybody from building a refinery? The Canadian government with their 10 years environmental impact assessment, Patty. Don't well, think that this isn't forced upon us by the regulatory long arm of our government. This government has killed the oil industry, and it's not just here in Newfoundland, it's across Canada. And if you want to deny that, I guess you're not looking at the facts. Well, okay, here's a couple of facts for you. Uh, the oil industry equates uh, 5% of GDP. Five, five percent. So crushing the industry is a very provincial-specific issue, whether it be Newfoundland, Labrador, Alberta, Saskatchewan, notably. Uh, so that's the facts. I mean, if you, if you want to talk about the facts on the national front, there are zero applications in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada for oil development, zero. There are zero applications for refineries in front of that same agency, zero. So there's a couple of uh, interesting facts. The government of Canada, as much as they are viewed as anti-oil, they do an awful lot of pro-oil stuff, when it comes to subsidies for oil and gas companies, and that includes provincial governments, when it comes to buying a pipeline that's going to cost more than the Muskrat Falls project, they just approved the Beta Nord, West White Rose is going ahead again, Terra Nova is going back on, on steam, Hibernia is going to continue to drill in the fall, two bouts of exploration happening, BP, Equinor currently at it. So I'm, I'm always a little bit confused with they've crushed the industry, that is 5% of GDP, and yet they do all these pro-oil things. It, it's kind of hard to square that circle sometimes for me. For you, yes, absolutely. As a liberal supporter, I don't think you would ever get down behind. And uh, what makes me a liberal supporter? You. Well, every every speaking point you have, sir, has been in. Uh, you know, you you really you work hard to make sure that people uh, 
people make it seem like they don't know what they're talking about. And no, we no, no, no. I, I didn't say you don't know what you're talking about. I just okay. threw out some actual I, facts. They're not liberal facts. They're fact facts. Fact facts. Okay. So the fact facts are that the liberal government is doing everything to support the Canadian industry of oil and gas. I didn't say that. To support Canadians. They're I didn't say that. Support Newfoundland. I didn't say that. No, they're, they're not. And we both know they're not because this, this whole, as you say, the electrical car argument, he made a, a very good point. Heat is used by electric electricity. All this charging, and you say for one kilowatt per hour, they can st- spend 50 hours on the highway? Just heating the vehicle. Pe- what about those people who spent three days on a highway down south? So if we all go electric, we're all going to be out in the cold on this one. And how how is it that we're going to move as well in a transportation industry that relies so heavily on diesel? How How do we plan on making that industry switch over? But, to, I mean, uh, but I don't say stuff gas. like that, though. It, it, look, it's easy enough to brand me liberal when I spend the bulk of the time criticizing, in particular, the federal government on a variety of fronts. And you can't tell me any different because it simply wouldn't be true. Nobody said that every vehicle, every piece of transportation is going to be electric all of a sudden. And no one's forcing you to buy an electric vehicle. We know well, full they, well in the agricultural industry, for starters, that the move towards electricity is going to take forever, if it even ever happens. Yeah. So again, it's uh, it's one of those things. Why are you? Why are we being? Why is it bought through the price of gas and through the ag campaigns to buy electric? Electric is the way to go. When in actuality, electric, like your last caller said about it, it hasn't been really proven yet because there has been recalls. There has been problems with batteries. Do, do the customers know that when they buy a Tesla and they they don't have any warranty and then they need to replace those batteries after they go, it's going to be forty thousand dollars. Do they know that uh, their hybrid RAV4, that when a little car goes that changes that uh, driven power into electrical power, if that goes, it's not replaced under warranty. The batteries might be, but not everything is going to be covered, and not everybody knows it. They think it's all roses. And what about the gas tax that's collected for the roadways? People think, well, geez, it's great. I won't have to pay tax now on the for the... For the roads, no, you most certainly will when you have to do your T4, your taxes, and say, yeah, I have an electric vehicle. But didn't I say exactly that not so long ago about replacing the tax base regarding uh, gasoline tax and the government, what they spend it on? Didn't I say exactly that? Not certain, Patty. I won't quote you on that. Well, I did, though. I did. And plus, the province brings in three times in gas tax than it spends annually on road work. So there's a big, uh, there's a long way to go before all of a sudden the provinces have money for road work based on uh, gas tax. And plus, this move for... we have a long way to go before we have money again, because we've been printing it like it's going out of style. The real driver of the, the economy is our GDP. And that has been, you know, you can pad the numbers or place how you may. But the real truth of the matter is we are not where we should be. Well, we are where we should be when we print trillions of dollars and give it away. But outside of that... Trillions of dollars? Well, billions. If you really want. The last two years, Patty, we've been shut down. Nobody's moved. Nobody's done nothing. The serve has paid out how many millions? And how are we going to get it all back? I like look selling, <clears throat> selling electric vehicles, but no, but the government doesn't I sell think, electric I vehicles. I think I know that, but they do sell the uh, the Paris 2030 agreement, which they signed on to. I didn't sign on to it. I don't really see the problem that that they seem as an emergency. Where's the emergency? You don't see climate change as an emergency. No, I don't see climate change as an emergency. I see climate change as a natural thing that happens on this earth. I think we've went through 
ice ages and we went through asteroid strikes, there's a bunch of stuff that's out of our control. I don't think that we can't, I don't believe for a second that we can't try to do better, but I don't think we need to go force square pegs down round holes. So, and that's you know I who thinks climate change is real? The oil industry. You know who else? The insurance companies. And so we can talk about whether or not a government is going to fall for whatever and or implement policies for Paris or Kyoto or whatever the case may be. But even if you just look at the industries that deal directly with greenhouse gas emissions, don't just back the scientists out of it, you know, the independent scientists or the scientists who's paid for their research. The oil companies, they've admitted it out loud. They know exactly what's going on. And the insurance companies, that's going to be the one that's going to force all our hands. It won't be government. It'll be the insurance companies. And, and who, who runs the insurance, or who, who, I guess, regulates the insurance companies? Patty? Who well, writes all It's that? not about who a regulatory. Insurance? It's not a regulatory it, issue. It, if, it is a regulatory no, issue. No, Because they're not. regulating that we don't, we don't buy gas. We don't, no. we don't use this. We have to go into a green initiative, which is being forced down our throat as your, as your past caller has said this is true i i don't disagree with him i don't believe i'm the only one out there with this sentiment so but no I one's forcing to do it though andrew so let, let's just for one second just one second nobody's making you buy an electric vehicle i mean there's people selling internal combustion engine vehicles today right this minute there's someone taking delivery of their brand new half ton with the 5.4 liter engine that's happening right this very second and the insurance companies, if you're talking about the regulatory issue regarding our premiums and what have you and the actuari actuarial tables what, um, and whatnot, the issue that I'm talking about is how much money they're spending in cleanups, whether it be from uh, snowstorms or wind events or floods or fires. They're the ones who are telling us this. This is not a government uh, issue being made up. So, I mean, we see governments change hands in the United States, back and forth, Republicans and Democrats, in this country, back and forth, conservatives and, and liberals. So it's, it can't be simply about just some sort of green, brainwashed bunch of morons that you apparently think we all are, when in fact... I didn't say that. Well, you, you, you know, you're, you're nudging now. right up against calling me whatever you'd like to call me, and I would encourage you to go ahead and let me have it as far as I'm concerned. No, you can't hurt I, me. I, I couldn't I'm, care less. No, sir, I'm, I'm not in the... Uh, the avenue of disrespecting to get my point across, and I, I did not for a second ever insult you. So if you don't like being called a liberal because that's what your views share, well, maybe you change the way you think and your views. No, I, I, I won't change a damn thing. I'll think what I think and say what I no. say, and I'll continue to that's do right. it. You know, but the, the bottom line on this who I am as a political supporter, I, I must be the worst liberal in town because there's never an occasion where there's an opportunity to call out the provincial or federal liberals. I, I don't miss one. When it's wrong, it's wrong. Because like well, I've said... for the taxation without representation. The same as every party. They're no different. They're politicians. They're all alike. And we here in Canada, we don't have a true conservative. We have a bunch of liberal lights who will jump on board with this, conserv or this uh, Paris 2030 agreement, the climate change initiative, which, you know, it is what it is, Patty. So what would, a conservative, what would a conservative say about that particular issue? A conservative say about that particular issue? I mm. guess you'd have to ask one, because I'm a bit of a libertarian myself. So, sir, Patty, you have a great day now. Same to you. Take care. Thanks for the call. All right, uh, let's go. Uh, and this is not because, Andrew, obviously he was done with the conversation. The price on pollution business has become pol uh, political as opposed to policy. Right? It, it just really, truly has. All you have to point to is the fact that the, I guess, probably still the biggest name in conservative politics in this country would be Stephen Harper. And if that's an exaggeration, then feel free to call me out. But I think so. He's certainly the 
father of this particular Conservative Party of Canada and the alliance between the reformers and the, and the PCs, he was full-throated in support of a price on pollution. He was. It's not me making it up. You can find this out very, very easily. So we went from what could work, what should work, and even if it's, I don't know how you want to brand anybody politically speaking, but if you talk about price point pressure, uh, pressures and the free market, and how things are adjusted by people's behavior, habits, purchasing power, what have you. That's very much a conservative thing. It just is. Certainly Harper thought it. So, again, we've got away from... If, if, the, if you're a conservative and the liberals say something, they're automatically wrong because they're liberal, and vice versa. When, in fact, no one party has it all figured out. They simply do not. Not one politician has all the answers. They don't. Nobody does. So the inability to call out the party of your... that the party that you support is sort of a failing that a lot of people suffer from. The Liberals don't have it all figured out. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. Do the Conservatives? Of course not. Do the NDP or the Greens or any other party in this world? Absolutely not. So politics has, has overtaken any sort of realistic conversation about policy. And you can call me whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite serious. Call me whatever you like. Uh, I don't know where we are, Dave. Is it break time? Probably. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Patty, in the uh, in the Telegram the weekend, they uh, talk, talked about a uh, a well, eastern red black red backed salamander. Saw that, yeah. Which is yes, which is not native, and so it could be coined in invasive species. Um, I've always been concerned about this, Patty, and uh, going back now quite a ways, probably ten, twenty years. When the uh, zebra mussels became in the on, on bottom of boats on uh, on mainland, uh, as far as I'm as far as to the best of my knowledge, Patty, I don't think that there is a uh, uh, a check of uh, of uh, boats and et cetera coming in from the mainland to the island for recreational purposes, visiting purposes, or just coming back home. And this this um, this causes great concern because the uh, because the, uh, the invasive species can come in very, very easily. Uh, you, you know, Patty, I'm, I've started up a chapter of the Canadian Wild Turkey Federation, and in our meeting with the government, they say no if they, way possible if Turkey's going to be uh, implemented here, introduced here on the island because they're an invasive species. It's the so, first thing that came to mind when you said invasive species was your effort to bring the wild turkey. That's funny that you said that. Anyway, keep going. Yes. Yes, of course, Patty, and, you know, it is. Uh, but what we're talking about now with the introduction of the wild turkey is a very uh, uh, slow and documented process, whereas uh, the concern I have is all these boats that are coming in, say, in Port of Basque. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think there's a program that uh, uh, looks after the invasive species, in other words, like a, a, a check station or something like that. And it's not going to be very long before, especially in these modern times with so much different translation, that the island of Newfoundland may be overcome with with invasive species. Now, Patty, I'm not pre- pressing the panic button or, or fear mongering or anything like that, but I am raising the alarm because there is no, uh, to the best of my knowledge, a program that uh, 
we'll investigate or test for invasive species here on the island of land. And we only have a couple of check stations. That's that would be uh, uh, Port of Basque, Urgentia, and St. Barb. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that type of evaluation made at airports, uh, but maybe not what it needs to be elsewhere. I like I don't I don't know. Like, how would this have even gotten here? Whether it be inadvertently escaped from a vessel that uh, docked in St. John's, or like I don't know. It has different ways of coming in. Sure. Of course, uh, coming in on freight, coming in on uh, on boats that people are towing, coming in on uh, luggage, uh, coming in on uh, you know freight, like I said. There's all kinds of different ways for it to come in, but there needs to be some kind of check, I think, to put, put in place because, God forbid, Patty, if there's an invasive species uh, that could do re- irre- irreparable harm, it's very easy for it to come in. And if it comes in, by God, how long will it be here before it takes hold? I don't know. There's a couple of invasive species that we actually have opportunities to deal with. Green crab comes to mind, for instance. Like, I don't know why we just don't allow everybody who wants to to get, catch, kill as many green crab as humanly possible, but for some reason we don't do it. And what devastation this salamander might leave behind, I really don't know. I don't know enough about it to offer any uh, comments about the salamander or what happens here. Like, what's the downside? What can the salamander actually do to the ecosystem? Well, that, that's just it, Patty. I, I don't know. I'm not a I really don't. Anything, but, and, I'm, and I'm just raising the alarm. I'm not trying to say, well, kill these things or anything like that. I'm just raising the alarm to, to put it up. What I read in the paper, though, and wasn't very much, said that it has it, it feeds and preys on other insects. So, you know, that doesn't say very much, right? Yeah, and I don't know. Again, I really don't know anything about the animal itself or what the implications are. But every time that there's any thought of an invasive species, it has to be given proper consideration. You know, we've actually seen the province introduce some species that hasn't necessarily worked out in our favor either. So when they are inadvertently dropped into the ecosystem, that's a possible, that's a potential problem in the making. So I don't know what next steps are for dealing with this particular salamander or, you know, we're talking about the cormorants and their impact on wild fish, what have you, but the province introduced the brown trout. That hasn't helped if we're talking about protection of different species. So, yeah, it's a tricky conversation. I don't know. Yes, and then... It, it would be a good idea to start the process of some kind of to figure out what the process is going to be, so that when it does come, come become an issue, like now with the the uh, oh my god the salamander, <laughs> then there will be a program set up, so there will be a followed implementation plan, point A, B, C, D, and a plan to follow, so that you could address it and be able to set up to study. What, what the implications are. Yeah, fair enough. And so I guess the department, you know, they were pretty clear in opposition to proposal, for instance, introducing the wild turkey. And I remember reading a variety of the things that there was one person in particular who was the head of that consideration. I can't remember the man's name or exactly what the position was called. But they were pretty clear. I think I heard you and him maybe it was on Crosstalk one afternoon as I was driving home. So, yes, that's correct. That's yeah. correct so I knew that happened. And so if they've got some facts to share, what people need to be mindful of or need to understand regarding this species or anything else, you know, share the information. I think people would be happy enough to consider it and talk about it and, and understand more about whether it be the salamander and or the ecosystem at large. I think that's an interesting way to uh, turn our minds away from some of the other issues we talk about. Uh, anything else this morning, Barry, before I take one more call and a break? Yes, Patty, uh, thank you. Uh, to talk about the uh, food fishery for a second. Sure. Patty, I sent you an email there yesterday from the email that I received. 
and the email that I received about the food fishery dates and season or whatever, it is that the Minister of, of uh, Fisheries, DFO Minister Murray, has not made, has not, has not made a decision yet. Patty, here we are. I'm looking at my calendar now. It is June, what, June the 7th. And the and season is usually opens the first weekend in July. We got come home here. We got the tourists. We got the people want to come from away, come from come from home to come home to go out fishing. And there's still no 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 announcement made. It's it's and it, this it doesn't sit well either, Patty, with this thing that Minister Murray is going on with the uh, with the uh, fishery gardens either. It just, it, it, she, she's, uh, I don't know what to say. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, well, I mean, when I looked at last year's announcement date, compared to the date it opened, it was longer stretch of time than would currently be, if we open in and around the same time this year, this will be a much more compressed preparation time for people, whether it be to book their holiday or to make plans to get out on the water. And I do think, you know, I'd never really thought people would be open-minded to uh, a tax system. But when we talk about the prices and we talk about the rotational workers and we talk about the time that we all have, as opposed to simply having three days a week, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, to get out there, if you simply had your tags and you could get all your fish in one trip and save yourself a bit of money and to be able to plan accordingly and to not be quasi-forced to go out in questionable weather, all of a sudden I think the tags are a worthwhile conversation. But I'll give you the last word before I have to go. Yes, Patty, uh, you know, my own personal opinion, I agree with you too. Uh, you know, the tags would be the best way to go. Take away the bag limit per day, take away the season length, go out when you want to get your fish. You can get them all in one day or spread it out over the season. Once your tags are done, you're done. The big argument against tags, Patty, and it's not an argument against tags at all, it's an excuse, is what about plastic tags going in the, in the bottom of the ocean? Well, Patty, there's an easy solution. That just make an amendment saying that's illegal to dump the tags into the ocean. Yeah, don't dump the, the tags. Same thing as taking moose tags or your sal- your salmon tags home with you. Yeah, there's lots of arguments uh, that are based in some kind of flimsy tags. rationale. But anyway, you don't have to throw the tag in the ocean. There's a good way to keep it off the floor. Absolutely. And the uh, one one more quick word, Patty. The uh, Atlantic mackerel fishery is uh, is open for recreational this year. It's been closed for the uh, commercial, but it is open for the uh, uh, recreational. Yeah, yeah. And that season runs from April to December. And this is the season, Patty. This long season is the season that people who are against the tag are saying that the uh, the Maritimes have this cod fishing trough from uh, uh, April to December. And that is not true. No, it's not. As I said before, it's, and it's just another fear-mongering excuse for people not to want to uh, drive people away from tags. Yeah, now they've had an extended season compared to us uh, many years in the past, but not to the extent which I'm sometimes told. I uh, appreciate this, Barry. Off I go. Thanks very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line one. Cecil, you're on the air. Patty. Yes. Wondering about the taxes on the, the gas. Can you tell me how much carbon tax and other taxes are on gas? 
I, I can take a sh uh, shot at it. There's a 10% federal excise tax. Did you want me to try? Yeah. Okay. okay. There's a federal excise tax that is uh, $0.10, cents, and that's been there for about 25 years. Then the provincial component of tax, when it's in full, is $0.14.5, cents, has been reduced by half, only temporarily, to the 1st of January. There is $0.11 cents of carbon tax, and there's 15% uh, of HST. Oh, it's only 11% uh, carbon tax? $0.11 cents per litre. $0.11 cents a litre. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, uh, this has helped driving up the price of gas. It's ridiculous, really, what's going on, because there's people got to drive 30 to 40 kilometers a day or more to go to work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they just won't be able to afford to do it. Oh, I and mean, I, I see the stories the all the time. Car is the answer because the cheapest electric car, I understand, I was checking the other day, is over $40,000. Yeah, I think like things uh, as things evolve and change because, of course, it's easy enough to pick up a used uh, car now internal combustion engine because that's been all we've ever driven well, for the ninety nine percent of us. So as years tick by, before you know it, like our office is next door to a used car lot right here on Kemet Road. I doubt there's one single electric vehicle on it, but in ten years from now, I bet you there will be. So that's where I think things like price points and how you get into it and subsidies. Because you're right, at this moment in time, like even when the province came out with their five point plan, and monies to uh, move from oiled heat in your home to electricity and or additional subsidies or rebates for electric vehicles and hybrids. That's only for the folks who can afford it. That's not the most of us, right? That's right. You know, the other issues that the bulk of us deal with day in and day out is not those considerations. It's fairly expensive to get into a brand new electric vehicle, no question about it. Uh, but I think that changes as all of a sudden they become part of the used market as well, right? So I, I, we're not where we need to be today. And no one's flipping a switch and suggesting that, you know, all of a sudden everywhere you look from transport trucks to uh, combines on the fields and everybody's vehicle that's and everybody's right. driveway is electric. That's not happening. We are so far away from that worry that I think we're, we get a little bit uh, wound up about something that isn't even really actually happening at this moment in time. But the price of oil in relation to the price of gas is completely out of whack. I mean, gas shouldn't shouldn't have jumped up nine cents last night. I don't argue with that at all. I have no earthly idea why it jumped that much. And like I've said I mean, many times. Any answers to that? Well, no. Uh, I don't know how many times I've said some of these things, but I have no earthly idea about the inner workings of the interruption formula. I, I know a little bit about the relationship between the price of a barrel of oil and the price of a liter of gas, and it's not as direct as people think it is, but I have no idea why it went up nine cents last night. None. Now, even when the PUB... Okay. Who's controlling the PUB? Is there a one person or two persons? or? I think there's eight officers of the PUB, if I remember the number correctly. You can find out who they are. You can Google up who works at the PUB. The hair, or the chair, pardon me, of the petroleum pricing panel, I don't know who that is. So I'm not even going to take a stab. I knew one time, but that was a long time ago when it was first uh, a, an arm of the PUB, but I don't know the name of the person right now. And uh, one time you'd get help from the NDP, but see, the NDP and liberals are joined hands, and the one time you get them uh, kind of complaining, helping along, and criticizing the government for the price of gas and everything else, and now they're gone silent because they're joined the liberals. Uh, federally? Federally, yeah. I don't know who would ever vote NDP again. Well, I don't know, but there's no federal implication on the price of gas. I know, but I'm saying the NDP has joined the Liberals. And the Liberals is driving up the price of gas, I think. 
Um, They're not helping any anyway. Well, they, they've certainly contributed 11 cents. That would possibly not be there if there was another party in charge. That's fair. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a vicious circle right now, and it's terrible what's going on. I don't know where it ends, but even if we knew why the PUB raised the price nine cents last night, they still would have raised it nine cents last night. We've got to have a better understanding of how regulated price of fuel is either helping or hurting. I don't know the answer, yeah, someone, but uh, someone has to do an investigation in that. I appreciate the time this morning. Okay, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Cecil. All right. Bye bye. Uh, quick, before we get to the news, line number five, Sean, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing very well, thanks. How about you? Good, good. Uh, Patty, uh, just calling to see if uh, anyone has picked up a wallet in or around the Tim Hortons in the lower level of the uh, airport there yesterday around 1 p.m.? Ah, too bad. So there's the call out, folks. There's obviously a lot of traffic in the airport. If you found a wallet on the lower level in and around the Tim Hortons, Sean owns it. We'd love to get it back to you. Yeah, actually, my son owns it, Patty. Oh, your son. He, he left on a, uh, yeah, he left uh, for Florida on a flight to Toronto yesterday. And when he got at the uh, the airport in Toronto, he realized that he he lost his wallet. Oh, and, uh, poor kid! Just 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 putting it out there. He's trying to uh, see if somebody had seen it, picked it up. Uh, if they have, uh, there's a reward offered, and uh, didn't contact me. I can I can put my uh, number on the air here if you want. Go right ahead. Yeah, uh, my number is six nine seven one six one seven. I'm shot. One six one seven. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, six nine seven one six one seven. Young fellas, wallet, uh, St. John's International Airport, lower level, lower level. Tim Horton. So let's hope that he gets it back. So does he have his ID and stuff for for flying, or he just no. simply had his uh, passport in his pocket or something? Yeah, he had his passport on, on his person, Patty, but he just just lost ah. all, all of his IDs and stuff. And he actually had some. Uh, there was a small amount of cash there. He had just changed it over actually the U.S. dollars for for down there. We're spending money. Uh, let's hope that we can get it returned to you, Sean. So, fingers crossed. Let us know what happens. Okay, Patty. Thanks very much. Appreciate you're, it, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye. Yeah, this is a drag, right? You know, very quick. Flew for the first time to Alberta in 1990 to go work at the hotel in Jasper. And my girlfriend at the time, I'll leave her name out of it. She knows who she is. She made me give her my cash. So she could hold on to it so I didn't lose it or something when I'd never lost a dollar in my life up to that point. So we arrive late in that, I mean, like midnight. And we, are, we had just missed the last bus from Edmonton to Jasper. So we needed a hotel. But initially we had stopped at the bus station itself and made a few calls around to see if we could a hotel. Eventually we went to the Chateau Lacombe, I think it was called. So she made me give, me her, give her my money. She put it in her wallet, and here we are in the dodgy bus station in Edmonton. And we get in the cab to head to the, head to the hotel, and lo and behold, she left the wallet in the bus station. Now, there is a pretty good collection of mutants in the bus station at that time. And she had laid it on the back of the payphone. So you know where it has a bit of a crevice at the back of the payphone? And the wallet was in there. We were gone for like 10 or 15 minutes. Nobody saw it. And the whole way there was, well, you've got to call your father. You've got to give me all the cash. She made me give to her. She left the, well, the bus station. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. 
Let's go Lana Rowan, say good morning to the progressive conservative member for Conception Bay East Bell He's also the interim leader of the opposition. That's David Brazel on one. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. No I just wanted to uh, echo my concern and disappointment uh, when I heard of the uh, cuts to the student project for the uh, Easter Seals here in Newfoundland, Labrador, and how vital they are to offering their accessibility camps and the programs and services they offer in the summer while employing young people to be mentors uh, for those clientele and those participants in the program. Uh, but particularly this morning when I heard their CEO, Mark Bradbury, talk about the impact this is going to have, that they now have to find more than 50% of the funding because they still need and want to offer the programs uh, to their clientele and to the members there. But also that when they reached out to the local MPs to say, you know, we've been getting these for years, well, we meet all the criteria, why all of a sudden were we caught, you know, 50% or more and not getting any support to bring that back to ensure that, you know, a vulnerable group that are offering very valuable services are not being uh, given a chance to provide those services as, as they had in the past and not getting an explanation as to why they now no longer meet the criteria that they have for decades in this province. So that, that was alarming, uh, particularly in my own district. I uh, had the uh, Wabana Boys and Girls Club, which is the mainstay for social recreation and educational programs on Belle Island. They were cut 80% this year uh, with no explanation as to why they would for their programming from what they requested. And when I reached out to uh, MP uh, Joanne Thompson and had a discussion, uh, I was told her understanding was that the criteria was based on if you've been funded in the past, you would be a priority. If you're a not-for-profit, you'd be a priority. And depending on the type of programs you offered would be a priority. Well, I'm going to tell you, the Easter Seals and Wabana Boys and Girls Club and a number of other organizations that lost students this summer are the priorities that meet the criteria 100% and then some. So it's disappointing. Uh, it's disheartening. I'd like to know, did they give it because it's come home year to other entities out there? Did they give it to the private sector? Or did they cut their budgets and they're not saying it? Because this is not acceptable. I mean, think about what these programs offer to young people, especially young people with some challenges here, you know, uh, living in an economically depressed area or mobility challenges and programs that they look forward to. Look at the supports for the families in these cases, because families also uh, contribute as part and parcel of what's happening here. And I ask an organization like the Easter Seals to take part of its money that it has funding to, uh, during fundraising for a, an accessibility park to now go in to be able to provide the programs in the summer that were always sustainable through supports from you know federal and provincial governments. That's not acceptable. You know, I was fortunate on Bell Island that while the federal funding was cut to the Boys and Girls Club, I had some flexibility with some of the provincial ones that I could offset it, not back to where it was, but they're modifying their programs and services to meet some of the needs, but we shouldn't be doing that. These are people who deserve services that we're always getting it, meet the criteria, and then all of a sudden some bureaucrat or some politician who either doesn't have their hand on the handle of what the priority should be are making decisions that are detrimental to our young people in this province. Okay, so with Easter Seals, it's confusing to say the very least. Remember the summer jobs attestation that was just pathetic that the Liberals tried to bring forward there a few years ago, and that made no sense. Scott Sim spoke out about it, and he paid the price. Okay, with Easter Seals, 55% reduction in funding adds up to $25,000. And so when they hired post-secondary students in particular to be counselors, that's an important thing. But now, as opposed to relying on the funding that's been there in the past and whether or not this is a precedent for the future, they've had to uh, 
move from funding their accessible park to move some of those funds into hiring counsellors. So it's one step forward, two steps back. The plans that they have in place up there on Mount Sire Road for the accessible park and all the features of are brilliant and needed. So now to have to move on to, you know, re- refunneling money to counsellors is unbelievable. Like how did $25,000 all of a sudden become unavailable to a group like the Easter Seals? I just don't get it. 100% agree, Patty. And that's why, you know, not only is it disappointing, but it's disheartening that, you know, a federal department and a federal MP can find monies that these organizations are not only entitled to, uh, but it's been a standard part of their, their operation, a small part, but a very big part during these programs. Now, all of a sudden, to at the last minute, uh, throw a wrench uh, at them and say, now you've got to take money from somewhere else that, you know, they worked hard to do through fundraising for a specific program now to try to modify uh, their bottom line to be able to provide the services, that's not acceptable. You know, we've spent billions on COVID. Uh, you know, I'm disappointed here that they couldn't come up with money to go to legitimate organizations who are offering unbelievably good programs here to benefit uh, young people in our society. You know, so my, my issue here is Seamus O'Regan, Joanne Thompson, and anybody else who has input in being able to address this need to step up. If it means the province needs to step up to offset what their federal cousins didn't do, then they should do this because uh, this here is not acceptable. In this day and age, with groups that are made up mainly of volunteers who are doing wonderful work offering services, look what impact this is going to have on those families who rely on these camps and services in the summer to give their kids a break from the normal challenges that they may have. Appreciate this this morning, Dave. Thanks. Not a problem, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of comes out of left field because that summer jobs program at the station, you know, that you your organization was in line with liberal policies is kind of neither here nor there. You know, so automatically a lot of church groups were out. So, I mean, funding based on ideology as opposed to jobs that would be there for post-secondary students or high schoolers and the jobs that they performed and the good it did for the community, I mean, these are the arguments, not whether or not you support, you know, women's reproductive rights. (laughs) You know, it's an important social conversation, but attaching money to that is, you know, that's government's heavy hand coming down. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, calling about COVID okay. and the antiviral. Uh, both my husband and I tested positive Sunday night. And uh, we're both fully vaccinated with our boosters. Continued wearing our masks everywhere. But I guess somehow COVID found its way in. Anyway, uh, I checked yesterday uh, with a number of areas. Uh Started with 811, got referred to our doctor's office who referred us to uh, the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And the pharmacist did an assessment. Now, my husband has uh, a number of health issues, although he does lead a fairly active life. But this has kind of caused us some problems. And so I was calling mostly to see if he could get the antiviral. He has chronic lung condition. And he's also, he had a heart attack in November, 
and is in congestive heart failure and is followed regularly, monthly, at the heart clinic. But when the pharmacist did the assessment, he doesn't qualify for the antiviral drug that supposedly put in place to help keep people out of hospital. Uh, I, on the other hand, do qualify because I take a biological drug for psoriasis. My condition is nowhere near as bad as his, and he don't qualify. And, you know, I'm, I'm just... Why I haven't heard more people speak out about people with chronic respiratory illnesses are not covered under the protocols for the antiviral. Yeah, they've changed the protocols a couple of times, which is also not helpful and confusing for many. So your husband is over the age of 80? No. Okay. He's, actually, he's 67 today. The way of, what a way to start this have your birthday right or actually 70 i suppose they've changed it that many times but it, it did initially even go on to say that uh if you're immunocompromised and covid the virus is a re- respiratory issue and he obviously has respiratory concerns was there any mention by the pharmacist that paxlovid may indeed uh, be have a negative interaction with some other drug he might be taking no okay no, he got denied because He's not on a biological, basically. I see. And therefore, he's not considered to be immunocompromised. Because I take the biological, that does affect your ability to fight off infections. I am considered immunocompromised. But my breathing normally is fine. You can probably hear my voice is not so great today. But I am concerned about him. And, of course, timing is of the essence because you only have five days. That's right. Uh, you know, yesterday when I was in corner, I was really, really sick. <laughs> but I did make manage to make those few phone calls. But uh, And the pharmacist says, Sharon, there's nothing I can do for you. He doesn't qualify, even though he's on a list of medications as long as your arm for various other uh situation, you know, health issues, but yet he doesn't qualify for the antiviral. And I would have no earthly idea why, but you know what? The onset... Sorry. No, I was just going to say at the beginning there was a concern about supply, and I think that's been addressed. And the last time there was a report about the number of courses of Paxlova that had been administered, the last time I heard was 128, and nobody had been hospitalized. So it seems to be very effective. Yeah. And I don't know, and I agree with you, we're not getting the updates. I'm wondering, have they, looking at on the, the COVID website, looks like March 25th was their last update. Okay. I'd like to know how many, you know, are they going to look at that protocol? Do they have enough of that Paxlovid to increase the protocol for people like my husband and other people with respiratory problems or other chronic conditions that could keep them out of hospital, you know? And uh, I can't get through to anybody. 811 wasn't very helpful. Uh, I've, I've, can't tell you the number of people I've called, and I'm not getting, nobody seems to know anything to get us through. So it looks like we'll soon be up to 
or a couple of days. So my call to you today was mostly to reach somebody in the Department of Health, because I know guests are listening, and uh, to ask them to please look at the protocols. And if this is not, you know, if the supply is not being used as it was expected to be used, then maybe it would help to increase the the protocols so that others can get it. Uh, you know what we're going to do, Sharon, because we haven't we haven't been talking about COVID necessarily and or vaccinations, which has been extremely frustrating, and or the antivirals. Maybe just specifically on the antiviral, we'll see if we can get some from, from public health to come on the show because they're really the go-to as opposed to the operational department of health and community Absolutely. services. So let me see what I can do. Absolutely. Patty, on one other note, I, w- I just want to say I was at a large gathering on Wednesday night which is where I think I may have gotten it, even though I wore my mask, except for the time when I drank a soft drink, I took it off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Saturday night, I was at another big event. There was 10 of us at a table. It was a fabulous event. Nobody wore masks. And it was around 1, 12, 31 o'clock that I started developing symptoms. So I notified all my close contacts, people who were at the table, since then, four people who are at our table have tested positive, uh, in addition to me and my husband, right? So that's six of us from. So I, I'm just wondering, I did register online that I tested positive using a rapid test, but really nothing is being tracked. If I didn't go voluntarily go in and register, public health would have no idea that there were two more cases of COVID or that there could be a another outbreak because of the large gatherings. Right, and they won't even record your rapid uh, positive test with the PCR number, so we don't know what's going on in the community anymore. Some people think government's kind of given up. Now, some people applaud that, and some people are concerned that we don't really know. Now, there were some stories regarding the wastewater testing that saw uh, a bit of a spike just in communities around uh, St. John's, so... Nobody knows what the prevalence uh, of it is any longer. You know, there was encouraging news news last week regarding the numbers of people in hospital and what have you, but the amount of COVID out there, I don't think anybody knows. No, I no, agree. They don't. I... Sharon, let me see what I can find out from public health about protocols for Paxlovid, and otherwise I wish you and your husband a speedy recovery in full. Hopefully. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Sharon. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Yeah, David, let's see if we can get someone on from public health about the antiviral. I think that'd be good. Uh, let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I have heard you a couple of times, and I don't know anything about you, and I was very interested in knowing more about you. Uh-oh. So I, <laughs> I asked your producer, and he said, ask him online. I said, oh, no. But any, anyway, here I am. <laughs> I don't mean to be personal, but I really am interested in knowing. I don't know anything about you except what I've heard a couple of times. And could you tell, and I know other people might be interested a little bit, about where you're from, your background, your uh, other work that you've done before this, uh, any education, just anything you'd like to share. I would really appreciate that. Okay, I don't know how many people would be at all interested in any of that. I think but a lot would. I'm a townie. I ask a few people and they say, I don't know anything. Yeah, well, I'm happy to share. I've got very little to hide, I don't think. Uh, so I'm from St. John's. Uh-huh. My father's from Riverhead St. Mary's Bay. My mom's from Portugal Cove. 
Uh, I grew up in town. I spent the bulk of the 90s in Alberta where I met my wife, married my wife, and had my two children who are now in their 20s. Where in Alberta? Uh, we met in Jasper, and uh-huh. we lived in Hinton. Uh-huh. Uh, that's where the boys were born, at Hinton General Hospital. We lived in an apartment that we could actually see the hospital from uh-huh. when they were born there. Um, I went to Brother Ice High School. Uh, I'm not sure what else that. Oh, I uh, one of the things that I used to regret that I don't any longer because you know time has passed is I did attend Memorial University and when I moved to Jasper I never came back long enough to finish so I don't have a university degree. What did you take when you were there? Uh, I was in the general studies program mm-hmm. so you know I hadn't even committed to a major so I did okay. a variety of the general studies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The notables, you know, I did some uh-huh. sciences and maths and uh-huh. and the like. But uh, other than that, I've worked in a variety of jobs. I worked in the hospitality industry for just about a decade in Alberta. I sold trucks. Uh, one morning I was driving to work. We were commuting. I was still commuting to the Jasper Park Lodge from Hinton. And one morning, uh, I don't even know what happened to this day, but I hit a deer. I think oh. I was kind of uh, half asleep at the wheel because oh. Nicholas was... Uh, Nicholas was a cranky little baby, and we we used to have to walk him around all night, and I think I just inadvertently hit a deer. So that day, driving home, well, I drove to the hotel, I quit my job because I didn't want to kill myself on the highway, came back, and I pulled into the uh, the Ford dealership there. I went home and didn't have to tell my wife, honey, I'm uh, unemployed with a uh, two-month-old baby. I came home and said, honey, I'm selling trucks. Um, so I sold vehicles in Alberta for a while. And here I've done a variety of things. I was on Rogers Television out of the fog for four years prior to uh, taking this job. I was a TV presenter, Uh um, uh, co host on what they call a magazine show, a a variety Uh show, entertainment program. Uh Uh, But other than that, I'm not sure what else to add to it. I'm the oldest of five. Uh (laughs) I have a sister and uh, a brother and three sisters. Uh Oldest of five children, I gather you mean. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And how long were you in Alberta? Uh, from 1990 to 2000, I arrived here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids and the wife flew home. I arrived on Thanksgiving Sunday uh, and in 2000. Were you glad to be back? I was relieved to get off the highway and, and <laughs> pleased to be able to move home, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, what drew you to radio and TV? Uh, TV, I actually, this is a funny story. There was a guy named Dave Salter who was the co-host of Out of the Fog at the time. I did a Mun radio sports show with him, and he enjoyed the conversation. And so consequently, he asked me to do hockey interviews on Roger's coverage Uh of the uh, Baby Leafs Uh at the time. And then Uh one thing led to another, and I got his job Uh as the host of Out of the Fog, and here we are. Well, that's very interesting how that time at Mun on broadcast, doing something you enjoyed, led to all of this. But I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I've listened to a lot of people talk, but... You are so well-prepared, and you are sensible, and you are fair-minded, and you follow up on what you say, and you ask good questions, and if you don't agree, if you think something's incorrect, you say so. I wish we had more people like you everywhere, and particularly particularly in politics, particularly in the public sphere, because you're so clear and uh, fair-minded and well-prepared and well-researched. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I don't pretend to know it all. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I have to admit it and move on. If we're not willing to learn from our mistakes, or in sitting in this chair, it'd be a fool's errand to pretend you always knew what was going on and you had all the yeah. answers, because I don't, and I admit it all the time. So uh, I really appreciate the input, and thank you for your questions. We just basically did the Telegram's 20 questions there, but radio <laughs> style. Well, thank you for answering them. Best wishes. Same to you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> there you go. So 
Sometimes it's a bit too much information maybe for some of the listeners this morning. But hey, she asked. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the outreach coordinator at Seniors NL. That's Mary Ennis. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Thanks. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Good. I'm good. Thanks very much. Anyway, I just wanted to, I'm not sure how many of our listeners um, are aware of this, but June is Seniors Month. And uh, whatever people's ages and whatever wherever their interests lie, there's no shortage of way for seniors to honor and celebrate who we are and all that we've contributed to our families and communities. My focus, though, right now is on uh, June 15th, and June 15th is World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, and that's the one day of the year designated by the United Nations as a time to build more awareness around the prevalence of elder abuse in our society. And it's a day to provide an opportunity for communities around the world to promote a better understanding of abuse and neglect of older adults by raising more awareness about the issue. And this month, uh, we have a series. We're, we're going to focus on elder abuse during June. And we have a series which is brought, brought to people by the Newfoundland and Labrador Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse. And that is a vital part of Seniors NL. And we kicked off our series today with a presentation on research conducted to find out what people involved in the study had to say about recognizing the symptoms of elder abuse, their knowledge of laws respecting the reporting of elder abuse, and their perceptions regarding that reporting. And it wasn't a really big surprise to find out that, you know, some of the reasons they they found about uh, failure to report. Uh, a lot of people don't, well, they don't know how to report, or they don't know probably that they're mandated to report. They may worry that they'll report something incorrectly. Uh, they have, uh, there's a fear around, a fear that the abused senior uh, might lose trust in them if they report them without their permission, for example. They don't want to get the abuser in trouble. A lot of abusers are family members and, you know, loved ones and adult children. And, of course, a senior being abused doesn't want to turn her son or daughter into the police. You know, there's a fear of um, maybe being put in a care home, losing the care provider they have, especially if the care provider is the one who's doing the abuse. And sometimes, you know, we just think about abuse as, well, someone has been physically abusive, when it could be all sorts of types of abuse, emotional and mental and financial. And you're right. If it's only one in five cases potentially being reported, it's because the person who's committing the abuse has been part of someone that you rely on. And, you know, you might see it as the destruction of a family or something. So who knows why they don't report it, but to recognize that it's beyond physical abuse, that we might see instances captured by cameras in a long-term care facility or what have you. But it takes many forms, and they're all equally as detrimental to the senior. Absolutely. And people sometimes aren't aware that 
that something is abuse, too, you know, that there's, there's that, too, where they're not sure what abuse is because they don't recognize all the different forms of abuse. And so that's one thing that, uh, you know, we're, well, we've been doing that all the time. You know, we go out, we give presentations on elder abuse and the different kinds of elder abuse, how to recognize it and how to report it. And, uh, well, actually, this month we're, we're doing a series on elder abuse, like I said, and later on, on uh, June 15th itself, we're going to have um, Henry Kiley, and Henry is the director, uh, director of Adult Protection with the Department of uh, Children, Seniors, and Social Development, and he will talk about ageism, because we really believe that ageism is probably the underlying promoter of abuse, if you will. You know, people have all these ageist ideas. And uh, and the, let's take sexual abuse, for example. You know, a lot of people think they would never cross their mind that an older person has been sexually abused because a lot of people have the perception that, oh, well, seniors don't have sex, you know. <laughs> so there's different different ways of, uh, of looking at it and different pieces of education that definitely needs to be done. Sure. Before we go a little further on ageism, regarding forms of abuse, like there's mandatory reporting laws, for instance, if a teacher or a nurse or someone thinks that a child is being abused. How about seniors? Oh, <laughs> seniors are abused in all kinds of ways. No, are there mandatory reporting laws like there would be for children? Yeah, we're getting, uh, I know here at Seniors NL, where we, we get calls uh, a lot of calls, you know, from seniors who um, have different issues that they're dealing with. And we've found, especially since COVID started, that there are more calls uh, around elder abuse, you know. So I think there's, there's so many factors to be considered and so much more research to be done because it's really difficult to collect statistics. Absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit more about ageism as well. So you mentioned maybe if someone's being sexually abused, and we know full well you know, seniors have sex well into their senior years, but what, where else is it rare its ugly head? Are we talking about whether or not people are viewed as being employable any longer or things like that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. People are, uh, you know, A lot of uh, seniors have, uh, well, today, especially in this day and age with uh, the economy the way it is, and, and there's a lot of seniors who continue working after the retirement years. And uh, probably a lot of places out there that won't hi- would rather hi- hire younger people. You know, and that's like a competition thing. They'll take a younger person over an older person. But we don't have statistics on that, so I really shouldn't speak to that part. But, uh, yes, ageism, you know, seniors are looked at as children sometimes, you know, and, and uh, they're disrespected. They, uh, when people, if you go to a doctor with a, a caregiver or a family member, the physician might talk to your caregiver instead of to you. Different things like that, you know, uh, um, they're all ageist. Yeah, and in the hiring world, you know, an employer might view a younger candidate as being more moldable as opposed to hiring someone who might be set in their ways. And they might unfortunately view 
uh, a senior as maybe having some health concerns that would see them removed from the job more frequently than a young person. Things which they sometimes maybe just make up in their mind, not based on the actual reality of the fact, but just based on, you know, the thing that, well, more modern uh, education and different type of perspective in an ever-changing world, when in fact, I know plenty of seniors that have a much more uh, nimble, mobile mind and willingness to listen and to learn than many people my age or younger. So we've got to be careful to not lump people into the one, into the one category all the time simply because of the age or the color of their hair. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting, you know, I'm, while I was listening to you that time, I was thinking about our situation here at Seniors NL. We're all seniors here, <laughs> Every one of us. Right. <laughs> I think we'll probably have our jobs for a long time if we decide to stay. <laughs> I think you probably will. So, Mary, what else can you offer for folks who maybe didn't have a chance to participate today, but even to get some information to, or to offer some questions or concerns or get some guidance from Seniors NL? What do they have to do? Actually, well, they can certainly contact us, but as far as our, uh, our Zoom sessions, our Tuesday morning Zoom sessions, they're all recorded to YouTube. So if people just plug in Seniors NL YouTube, they'll get the, the our account with the list of uh, um, recordings in it for all of our sessions. And they can just go in and uh, listen to them, hear the whole thing. I think that's terrific. Mary, I really appreciate the time this morning. You're always welcome. Okay, Patty, thanks so much. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Mariana. She's the Outreach Coordinator at Seniors NL. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this is information from someone who absolutely knows. I'll leave her name out of it for now. But this regarding the mandatory reporting laws for neglect or abuse. There is a legal obligation to abort neglect and or abuse if the, neglect, if the adult lacks capacity and does not understand or appreciate the abuse or neglect. If the person has capacity, is a bit more tangly, but services and supports should be offered. Okay, let's go to line number one. Perry, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Not bad. You? Beautiful day here on the West Coast, sir. Glad to hear it. Patty, back to the uh, EV, electric vehicle subject. Um, I understand if you purchase a new electric vehicle, you can plug them in at home. I've been listening to your show quite a bit there, and uh, just wondering what the, if you or your listeners know um, like what the cost is associated if you charge the battery here, per se, in, in Cornerbrook, and you drive it to the limit and you stop at a local fast charge station. I was wondering what the cost is associated to, to charge one of those those uh, vehicles up. Well, I, I suppose it's just like pulling into a gas station. depends on how much of a charge you need. But a full battery charge at a fast charge station, I don't have a number. I really don't know, Perry. But I'm sure yeah, someone listening can chime in very quickly and give me one. Right. I was wondering that the same thing. I know certain vehicles are going to vary, I guess, you know, and with the range and stuff like that. If it's a bigger vehicle, maybe it's got a bigger battery and uh, more cost, you know, like a vehicle, I guess, you know, but yeah, I'd be curious to know, too, you know, but what I do know about the operating expense of an EV versus an ICE, it's pennies to dollars. To fill up a, a fuel tank these days, even with gas less than it is, which is crazy this morning, uh, it's still pennies compared to dollars. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting. Like I said, I, I've listened, and I, I, I was thinking I probably missed it. You know, one of your callers might have might have chimed in and said, you know, what it costs to you know to run maybe the four or five hundred kilometers, whatever these vehicles are getting right now for range. But yeah, yeah. Now the fella from uh, the Facebook group, and they've doing all kinds of stuff. They actually have a storefront now, the Electric right. Vehicle Group, and they have opportunity for people to come in and see the vehicles, drive the vehicles, talk to owners. And get an associated cost, whether it be for maintenance and, uh, you know, like repair bills. I just spent a big load of money on my vehicle because I blew a transmission line. Something that I wouldn't have to worry about necessarily in an EV. So I don't know the number of a full charge at a fast charge station. uh, But I'll tell you what, Perry, there's someone on line number three who can tell us exactly that. Owns an electric vehicle. Perfect, yeah, because I I currently drive a hybrid right now. It seems to do well, but uh, compared, you know, to a comparable vehicle, but... uh yeah, and, uh, and and the vehicle purchase that I made, it seems to have a great warranty with that hybrid system, too, just so, you know, most of the callers there are calling in wondering about, you know, the batteries and components with that, but it seems like in the fine print of my vehicle, it seems to be very protective with the warranty, right? Yeah, and the vehicles will get better as time goes on because the manufacturer needs to be the go-to option in people's minds. So if there's complaints about the 2019 RAV4, well, will that vehicle be better in years to come? I would think so. Advancements, technology changes, they'll have a competitive uh, place in in the market. And so, yeah, vehicles that have good reputation, just like everything else. If you have a good reputation, you probably sell more. Right, right, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, that's all I wanted to throw out there, Patty. Really, thank you for your program, sir, and your service that you uh, provide here for us uh, people here. And uh, you have a great day. You too, Perry. So stay tuned. Kate's going to uh, fill us in on the cost. I certainly will. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Yeah, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Kate, you're on the air. Hi there. How are you doing? Doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Good. I was just listening to your caller there with questions about electric vehicles. So um, I'm no professional at that. I'm sure there's lots of people who could give him very uh you know kind of precise answers on that but um we own a a mustang Mach-E, so it's like an suv electric vehicle we just recently got it uh in the last month and we actually got it in nova scotia because there's it's practically impossible to get an electric vehicle um you know here uh, on the island right now so we had to order nova scotia and we did the calculation so prior to having the electric vehicle, we had a Dodge Ram uh, truck, and it was costing us about, probably about $200 every five days for fill-up, and, you know, driving around the city, my husband was using it for work, um, so quite expensive, obviously, to have that vehicle, um, and now having the electric vehicle, we've gone from about $220 uh, a week in gas uh, down to about $14 for electricity to, to charge it. So, um, you know, we obviously it's a significant saving. Uh, we actually just drove from uh, Nova Scotia to St. John's uh, to bring it home. And that ride would have cost us about closing in on about $700 in fuel. We definitely would have had to fill up three times uh, in the truck. And so, Three times two twenty, about six sixty in in fuel, uh, and charging it. So the way charging works is if you charge it at home, um, you know you just plug it in, use an electric cord. It can take quite a long time. You know, overnight you can get a charge on that or whatever. But it does. It's not a premium charge, I guess. Uh, and then as you're driving across the province, there's regular charging stations, uh, and they 
cost a certain amount. And then there's superchargers. So basically it gives you a really fast charge. So um, that can cost up to about $2 an hour to charge your car on uh, on the supercharger. And that gets you about 80% of a charge. So, um, you know, I guess like with anything, right, you don't necessarily need to charge it to 100%. Um, our vehicle gives us about 450 kilometers in a charge. And so if we go to 80%, that's, you know, 300, 350 kilometers that we can get out of that charge. So when we did the calculation, comparing our truck to charging on a supercharger, you know, as we were making our way home, it was about 35 cents a kilometer if we were using fuel and used the chargers, you know, paying the $2 or whatever we needed to charge along the way. It was about three cents a kilometer is what we paid. So it was a pretty significant savings in, in you know, the cost, I guess, right? Um, from So what we're doing now, we're actually getting a fast charger installed in our garage, and it's similar to a dryer charger. Uh, you know, if you think about what your dryer charger looks like at home, and that'll actually allow us to charge home in our garage at a, at a much faster rate and, you know, probably cost 500 to to $1,000 to get it installed and buy whatever you need to, to do to have it. So, um, And we'll charge in the nighttime then. Um, you know, when we're home at night and kind of bring her up to whatever we need to get around. But, you know, 400 or 450 kilometers certainly does us uh, for a few days around the city. My husband drives a lot for work. So, um, you know, we're not finding that we're running out of charge or anything like that. And the questions that we get, I guess, people are saying, well, what about if you run out of charge? Well, you know, there's more and more chargers getting around. There's free chargers around. Uh, Mount Pearl has free chargers. St. John's has free chargers. So, you know, if you're going in anywhere, it's pretty easy right now to plug in your, your vehicle and get some extra charge. Um, and, you know, it's like your vehicle, right? I mean, I've never ran out of gas in my gas car forever. So not really, you know, I mean, you're kind of watching how much charge you have. It's pretty easy to see, um, you know, from a and I guess the other question that the uh, caller had was around maintenance. So, I mean, there's really very little maintenance on these vehicles. Um, you know, there's no belts, there's no manifolds, all that stuff goes away, right? So, um, you know, other than the battery, which, you know, lasts quite a long time, there's really not much that you have to do. It's interesting because brakes are the same thing. So when you're driving an electric vehicle, uh, it feels a bit different than driving your regular vehicle. It actually either goes or it doesn't go. So you're not actually using your brakes as much as you would be with a regular vehicle. And one of the, the challenges, I guess, or one of the things you got to do is occasionally actually use the brake because it can seize up if you if you didn't do it. So okay. there's a little bit of a different drive feel to it, right? But takes you like a day or so and then you're you're good to go and you know maybe that could be the vehicle that we have and how we got it set up um, but you know it's it's pretty well cost free and in terms of driving i mean if you were in our vehicle you wouldn't have any idea that it was an electric vehicle it's it's silent but a lot of vehicles are um i mean it's just no different than anything the only thing instead of going to the gas station we just plug it in so I don't know if that answers some of the questions. I think it probably does. And you've had the last word, and I appreciate you making time for the show, Kate. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. And, again, the summary is buy one or don't. All right, it's up to you. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>